Hello, and welcome to Social Design Insights, the weekly podcast that brings you the leading voices of the social design movement from the fields of architecture, engineering, planning, art, and whoever else we can find that's out there trying to make a world a better place. I'm your host, Eric Kessel. So one of the ways that I figured out that social design was an actual field as opposed to just a fad was when I first became aware of the fact that there were consultants in the space. Not a lot, but there were actually companies and individuals who worked to support and coach other public interest design practices. Our guest this week runs one such practice. Katie Kripal runs a consulting practice that she founded after her long career in public interest design. She has worked for and sometimes founded several organizations, including Impact Design Hub and Design Effects, both of which you will find linked to at our website. In recent years, Katie decided to start her own helper practice after she saw a community of social designers, who many of whom were facing the same problems. I love this interview for several reasons. First and foremost has to be that a lot of my friends are social impact designers. They run practices and they deal with all the challenges of being a designer, being a founder, being a fundraiser, being an employer, etc., etc. At Social Design Insights, we're always trying to inspire, enable, and support. And for those of you who have been listening to these episodes and thinking, hey, I should do something like that someday, Katie is the sort of person who helps. So whether you're currently working in the field of social design, just a fan, or an aspirant, there's always someone around who's willing to help. As you'll hear in the interview, Katie's insights are profound, and she really does a great deal to humanize the practice of public interest design. One of the problems with the field, my humble podcaster opinion, is that we've got a lot of heroics built into it. There's a mythology about you know, talented designers who are going into communities or to foreign countries and uh, living out this, this dream of helping people with design. But there's a lot of grunt work too, complicated grunt work that frustrates a lot of practices. So it warms my heart to know that people like Katie are out there helping young practices become mature practices. Anyway, she explains it much, much better than I do. So why don't we get to the show? Katie, welcome to the show. So nice to have you. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you. In uh, person, too. Yes. Uh, it's a rare treat to be able to do some of these in person. So I'm glad we were able to connect. And welcome back to the Bay Area. You just relocated from London, right? Yes, I did. How's that? Uh, it's been interesting. It's been a, as you've been saying, resettlement. <laughs> That's definitely the, the right term for it. After being uh, in the UK for five years, coming back to the Bay Area after living here previously and just trying to absorb and understand how I want to use, I guess, what the Bay Area, like what's going on here, how I want that to influence my practice and what I'm working on. There's a lot going on here, and mm -hmm. you have been a part of a lot of it over the years, and I actually wanted to start there. I think your your career has always had this really sort of interesting trajectory in terms of like starting out with you know large-scale knowledge dissemination and, and working, refining over the years to what you do now, which we'll get to in a second. But can you kind of take us back to like your Impact Design Hub days where I think a lot of people were first introduced to your name and yeah. your work and your perspectives and like how that sort of grew and transitioned over the years? Uh, so Impact Design Hub was a, a really big part of my career for about three years. A lot of that started with my own interest in what it takes to build a social impact design firm. I had worked with a friend on creating our own firm, and through that, I started collecting a lot of information and lists of different firms and different people. 
And uh, through starting my own blog, Design Effects, I met John Kerry, who had started publicinterestdesign.org. He was going on paternity leave, and he was looking for someone to fill in. And so I came in, and I stayed on through that. Uh, So he came back after paternity leave, and I just remained in that role of curating content, writing content, and uh, disseminating knowledge around social impact design, which at the time we called public interest design. But that... uh, Oh, we don't do semantics (laughs) on this show. You're you're on your own with that one. (laughs) We won't, yeah. So... That, to me, was answering a lot of my internal questions about what is this, how do people do it, what are they doing, who are they working with, and starting to share that knowledge and build a dialogue with other people from around the world who are asking similar questions. And what was the initial reception to that? I would say it was good. Uh, I think most people were excited to find it. I would get emails weekly, if not daily, about, like, thank you for creating this. Thank you for sharing this. I haven't found anything else like this. But there's one question that just kept coming up over and over again from a lot of people, which was, how can I do this? They loved the stories about other people. They, you know, were inspired by it. They felt like there's pieces, glimpses of themselves in all those stories, but they still hadn't really answered, what does this mean to me? How can I make this part of my career? And did that lead the transition to Design Effects? So Design Effects was actually running in parallel. I had started that one just to get into some deeper stories and starting to unpick the layers, whereas uh, Public Interest Design was really collecting a lot of the events and a lot of other articles and uh, just other things that were happening and trying to put it in a container and in one place where people could access it. Whereas a lot of the, the public interest design and social impact design news was typically on the edges or like one article out of 50 on other sites. And so we were looking at how to bring it all together. Uh, and the design effects, I wanted to just get into deeper stories with people and start to unpick their careers and their the firms that they're creating. What's an example of a story? I mean, years later, what's one that really sticks with you? I always really enjoyed the interviews that I did with people, similar, I'm sure, to yourself. <laughs> yeah, I enjoy it. <laughs> Talking to the practitioners is always so fascinating. One of my first interviews that I ever did was with Participate in Design out of Singapore. Mm-hmm. And that was when they were just starting and I had just started. And I did, it was probably 2,000 words <laughs> of an interview. But it was just so gratifying for myself to get into the underlayers of what is published in like a 500-word article to really expand that to 2,000. And it was an hour-long interview that I did. And just to really understand why did they start? What were they trying to do? How did things work in Singapore versus where I was familiar with in the U.S.? And to then share that and see other people reading it and commenting. And they still, I published a video on YouTube and that still gets views. I have no idea who's watching it. I haven't actually looked at it. Miss May. No, that's interesting. I mean, I, mean I, I sometimes worry that, you know, the path of social design and public interest design is kind of going in the same direction as, you know, architecture itself, where we come up with these amazing heroic mythologies around our designers about how, you know, they were just like hatched from their father's knee and, you know, there yeah. was like a full eclipse and then they started doing public interest design. I mean, is it fair to say that design effects is really about deconstructing that myth and talking about the yeah. nuts and bolts about how these practices started? Yeah, 
definitely. And I think it's also making space for, for I think, the truths behind it and some of the, the honest failures and challenges and struggles and not just celebrating all the successes, but also saying, I mean, Catherine Darnstadt, which I'm sure you you know very well, yeah. a lot of what, what started for her for Leighton Design was it was a plan B. Yeah. You know, it was never her intent to make that her full-time, full thing. And I think that reminder that a lot of this is still experimentational and people are starting at not knowing what's going to happen and that's okay. Like it can start to unravel and take turns and do things unexpectedly. I am so glad to have you on the show (laughs) (laughs) because I think our listeners really need to hear that. You know, I think a lot of the feedback we get and the feedback I get from my own students is that there's got to be some plan and things have to go according to plan and, you know, what are the steps one, two, three that I can use to become a social interest designer? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I reflect frequently that I never had a plan either. I mean, I, I'm on like plan G at the moment, <laughs> like obviously because I'm a podcast host now, but no, I, I, I mean, you have to be sort of open to those twists and turns. Is that yeah. part of the, the coaching that you do? Yes, uh, definitely. That's a big part. I think it's also part of my journey. I mean, similar to you, I started writing and ended up doing blogging, editing, research for three years for a foundation. I had no idea that I would do that because I think a lot of my training in architecture was all about the projects and about the buildings. And that is just one eighth of like what it takes to actually do this work. There's so much more that goes into it beyond just the output that you're creating. Let's talk a little bit about your current practice. I mean, building off this history of writing, research, exposition, that sort of thing, you've now, Mm -hmm. you've crafted a business where you essentially help social impact designers become social impact designers, right? Yeah. Okay. Could you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah. Yeah. So it goes back to that question of how can I do this myself? Through a lot of people asking me that, I started to go back to my training, which Part of it was in architecture, but the other part was in business. And a lot of what it takes to do social impact design is things like marketing and sales and a little bit of business planning, not too much planning. Sounds very boring, Katie. Yeah, (laughs) it is. It is fun. (laughs) Boring. Yeah, boring fun. But at the root of all that is the people that you want to work with. And so a lot of my practice, I think, is it's human-centered design for business, And so it's who are the people that you want to support? What is the resonance that you have with them? What are the things that you can provide them? And what's that that kind of match point between you and either the communities or local authorities, or sometimes it is social enterprises or for-profits that you're working with, and helping designers that have some type of impact or purpose-driven or values-driven essence and core to their work, help them start to build out what they want their firm to look like. Now, that seems like it would be intuitive, right? I mean, if I just sort of dropped what I was doing and decided to become a public interest designer today, why wouldn't I already know those things? I mean, what are the roadblocks, the the sort of mental roadblocks that you encounter in your work with people who are interested in this work and get stuck? Yeah, Uh, there's quite a few. (laughs) (laughs) It's a, And I think it's probably a lot of what any of us that are trying to do something different or trying to start our own venture or even have been doing something but aren't completely satisfied by it, 
Well, one of them is the imposter syndrome. Like, am I good enough for this? Do I actually have the skills? Am I actually going to make a difference? That's a big one to work through and to start to determine what you do want to put into your work and what you want to preserve for other parts of your life. You know, to put everything in. Really? Um, yeah. Are, are you sure? <laughs> I mean, you can. <laughs> it's up to you. That, that seems like it would be number one uh, uh, amongst the community, maybe just because of the way the designers are trained. Um, but yeah. in, in your experience, like, you don't have to work 100 hours a week to be successful at, at being a public interest designer. No. Well, I mean, you can. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's, it's not up for to, me. <laughs> no, it's good to know. I think our audience needs to know. Yeah. 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 So. But a lot of my clients are doing this as one. It's a second thing. They're working at a practice or they're doing freelance and they have this social impact work as part of a second parallel path that they're pursuing. And a lot of them do want it to become full time. But right now they're still testing they're still experimenting. They're still kind of ironing out and getting the details set on what's going to work so that they can then shift and start to move uh, to making this full-time. Now, that is a big cliff to jump off of. Um, Mm -hmm. And you and I know a lot of people that have done it. I mean, I did it. And I know a lot of people that are thinking about doing it. What advice do you give people who are just standing at the edge of that cliff and saying, I really kind of want to jump, but it's also a cliff. Uh, I've got rent to pay. I've got student loans to take care of. Yeah. Yeah. Well, a lot of it does come back down to money and how, what is, uh, I guess, your comfort level with that risk? Um, What are your obligations? Are there ways that you can shift some of those obligations? Is there reserves that you're willing to put in, like savings that you're willing to put in to test? And how long are you going to give yourself to actually experiment with this? So sometimes it is saying, I'm going to give this six months and see what happens. And then I'll reevaluate. So that's also what I like to do is put some milestones in with clients so that it's not, I'm doing this indefinitely. I don't know when it's going to end. I'm not sure what's going to happen. But just have some checkpoints for yourself so that you're not just going in and expecting everything to work immediately because it won't. (laughs) Is that a common affliction among these, these people who are trying to start these practices? Not with the people that I have worked with, I find that a lot of the online business advice is a lot of like, just jump in, do it, you'll figure it out, it'll work. And a lot of these promises about things that will work, you're on your own schedule. Like a lot of it comes back to your mindset and the resiliency that you have internally to keep pursuing something and also being flexible, being able to shift when things aren't working. Flexible. Could you flesh that out a little bit? Yeah, so I think a lot of when you're starting out something new, you have ideas about what you want to offer, who you want to work with, who are the people that um, that you want to to serve, what maybe price points those are that you're putting it at, what your hourly rate is, you know, however you are kind of putting your business model together. But that's all an experiment. I think when you start to actually put it out there and start inviting people in to work with you, that's when things start to get real and people are going to say no and some people are going to say yes and other people are going to say, this isn't exactly what I want. Can you do this? And so there is a flexibility in kind of this. It's like you have a amoeba that you're trying to define the edges. You have all the, the inputs in there and you start to filter out like, 
what is working and what isn't. And a lot of that requires flexibility. You're listening to Social Design Insights. We hope you have been enjoying these thoughts from Katie Kropal about how to make space for honest failures. But we're going to take a quick break. When we get back, we're going to be talking about decluttering, baggage, and balance. And Katie is going to give us all some insight about how to manage the mental space necessary in running a practice. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with more Social Design Insights after the break. Welcome back to Social Design Insights. We've been speaking with Katie Kropal about how to practice. Coming up, we're going to get down to it and talk about how design can be used to design a business. Let's rejoin the conversation. This sort of mental flexibility, I imagine that comes uh, in very difficult ways to people who are kind of super intense and, and passionate, and then they start doing their work and they run up against some roadblock, either financial or cultural or whatever it is. And, you know, rather than being able to shift tracks, slightly, they abandon the endeavor altogether. Is that a phenomenon that's common? I haven't seen anyone abandon what they do. So what happens? They usually change or they take a break. Well, that's good news. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And I think it's also okay to take breaks from things and to take a pause and reflect back on what's happened and where are you going? Like, where? what have you done and where do you want to continue going? That's where... When I work with people that are a few years in, like five to ten years in, a lot of that work is on that reflection and saying, okay, I've done all this stuff, but what does this mean? And what do I want to take with me? And what do I want to leave behind? What do I want to just stop doing? Is that when you typically become involved with a client, you know, after a few years of practice and they've got some miles on the road, as it were? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's always it's a good point around, I'd say, three plus years. Because three years gives you enough time to really test things and kind of work through all of the the big learning curves that you go through to set things up and start to put yourself out there. And you have, depending on the amount of time and the amount of projects that you've done, a lot of people have a good amount of work to look at and to assess and then to start to filter and as I like to sometimes say, is declutter it. <laughs> declutter? Yes. That's an interesting word. Yeah. Uh, let's flesh that out, too. I mean, declutter as opposed to, what, one's mindset, one's finances, one's work, one's yeah. staff. A lot of it's just that business model, like looking at what you want to keep doing. So a lot of people put a lot into it. It's almost like when, I don't know, like your wardrobe or something, where and you've hit a point in your life where things are changing, And you have a lot of stuff, just a lot of baggage with you. It's like, this isn't, I don't need all this. I don't want all this to continue. I don't want to have to keep maintaining it and doing it. And so how can you start to simplify what you want to continue doing and let go of the other stuff that's not working for you? It's hard, though, to make those decisions. Yeah, um, it is hard to make those decisions, right? It is hard to sort of let go. There's a sort of psychological inertia that, because we've been doing things for the last three years, we should keep doing them. Mm-hmm. Um, and it sounds like a critical thing for designers to always be observing is uh, the, the sort of potential fallacy in that, right? Yeah. That 
You know, there are just things that made sense three years ago and you don't need to do them anymore, which actually is a great segue to my next question, which is we were talking once upon a time, I think you were still in London and you were talking about the ability to design a business. And I've always wondered why that's a stumbling block. I mean, designers Mm. spend years and years in school learning this very, very powerful design methodology, right? I mean, it's just, it's a mode of thinking. It's a way to sort of create things and, well, design them, uh, obviously. And then as it applies to, you know, your business model or how you want to organize a team or something like that, it doesn't occur to a lot of people to pick up those design tools and actually use them to design, you know, the business model that they want, the the kind of program that they, yeah. they want to undertake and that sort of thing. Tell us about that. How do you design a business? Yeah, that's really fun. Uh, <laughs> and I think it, it comes, a lot of the clients I've worked with, I think they start to see their business as something that they can design and they mm. can choose. And you don't have to put everything in. Again, it's kind of going back to that decluttering and simplifying. But it's also understanding what are the components that go into a business. What are the things that you need to kind of build that framework for yourself And then you get to choose which pieces you get to put in. And I think of it a lot like as if you're designing a building. You kind of have the core essentials. If you're designing a house, you most likely need a bathroom, a kitchen, uh, some living area, and a bedroom. And there's also those essentials in business. It's like what what are your values? What's kind of the big vision or mission or uh, uh, movement-driven a statement that you're all working towards. Who are the people? What are their roles? And then what are some of the the marketing and sales and delivery tools and activities that you have to do? It's these core pieces that there's a lot of things that you can do, but you don't have to do them all. You need to mm-hmm. do what fits you as a person, supports your business, and helps that really uh, thrive. That's kind of the I guess, the core of what it is. But I think the way that people go about designing that is a lot of what they have brought and what they've learned in the past and things that they want to either change or just do differently for themselves. What's an example of that? So when we design a business with a client, it's helping them map out all those different elements for themselves. And so we always start with what's my personal kind of vision for myself, then how does my business support that? Does my company support that? Uh, what are the values that drive my work? So there's typically, there's I like to go with three, but those typically come pretty easily to people. And it's a lot of things that are inherent in the way that they operate and interact with others in the world. And then the client piece of what's the transformation that you offer them. A lot of that people already know. And then how you actually make that come to life is through what you do. Like, what are your services that you offer? And then how do you help people understand and make them aware of what you offer? And I think a lot of that marketing and sales piece is, and business development, always feels really foreign to people. They don't like it. They get There's a lot of resistance because that whole process has a very... Uh, uh, slimy kind of <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, connotation to it. But I think by them going back, and I try and reiterate this, is it's about the people that you want to work with. It's about choosing and surrounding yourself with the people that you enjoy most and that you feel like that you can support them the most. 
And by seeing it as a relationship building, not I'm marketing something or I'm selling something, but I'm inviting somebody to potentially work with me and creating and nurturing relationships is that it goes back to the people element and reminding them that it's people that you enjoy. Yes, you could potentially work on something with them, but you don't have to um, feel as if you're a different person through it. You can still bring in some of those values and the things and the, that purpose behind your work into those interactions with them. There is this sort of historical legacy within a lot of the design professions that's trained to look at the business side of things as being, you know, ooky, right? I mean, that's like, that's not what a real architect does or what a real designer does. And I don't know why this factoids in my brain, but up in the late 1970s, the American Institute of Architects actually forbade its members from advertising their own services because it was considered, you know, ungentlemanly to advertise yourself as a professional and that sort of thing, right? Mm-hmm. Even to this day, you know, there's a sort of cultural aversion to, to dealing with a lot of this stuff. If I'm hearing you right, really the solution is kind of reframing a lot of this stuff, not as you know, some separate alien activity, but as really at the core of what we do is is people and we're trying to, to serve them and these are means to do so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's relationships. Because yeah. if you, a lot of the clients I've worked with and that I am supporting now, it's all relationships that they have, that they have done work with people in the past or they've done something or they've met them somewhere and they have said, I would love to work with that person. What's bad about that? Wanting to work I don't know. and support. And it's like, and I think a lot of architects do that naturally. Like a lot of their clients come through relationships that they have, past relationships, maybe friendships, maybe family that refer them. And I don't think there's anything negative about that. And so it's how do you start to use that to your advantage and to help your company continue to thrive? Why build a company? Why build a building if there's no people involved? I want to drill down a little bit on this term business because, uh, you know, in this conversation so far, we've been using the language of business. We've been talking about businesses and marketing and that sort of stuff. And I think, you know, another historical legacy that social design, public interest design deals with is that it comes from a nonprofit space. You know, most of the people of my generation grew up in nonprofits. They started nonprofits. Like, that's how the work actually got done. And we're seeing the emergence of you know, uh, S Corp or B Corps, you know, benefit corporations, socially responsible businesses, like these sorts of things. There are all sorts of different available legal structures for how to organize oneself and one's efforts. Could you talk a little bit about that and how you advise your clients in terms of understanding that part of how to do it? Yeah. I actually don't do a ton of work on that with them. Most of the clients that I have, well, I'd say it's probably about half and half maybe three quarters, one quarter, that are nonprofits and charities, so about a quarter, and then the rest have been for-profit. I don't really support them with that because I'm not, that's not my specialty. But I think there's going to be a convergence (laughs) of those because I feel like a lot of nonprofits are starting to think and act more like businesses Mm. in order to survive and to continue to be in operation. And a lot of the terms... Like fundraising is marketing and selling. (laughs) So it is is really similar. The mentality is slightly different. Who you're approaching is you're approaching them in a different way. It's usually not for they're paying you for something, but they're paying you to serve somebody else. Um, And so I think that 
the approach is, is somewhat similar. I guess I wanted to touch on it because, you know, I have seen a sort of spike in these different sort of legal structures. And you mentioned Catherine Darnstead. I mean, mm-hmm. she's got a B Corp and is constantly ranting about the benefits <laughs> and the tribulations of, of doing so. And it's just, it's so new. So, yeah. but I don't know. I mean, if you don't deal with that stuff directly with your clients, maybe we shouldn't include yeah. it or anything. I've explored it a bit. So I've looked at different, like what are the underpinnings of a social enterprise and how do you start to align your money with the services or products? A lot of them are product-based. And so I think it does come back to what is your vision, what is the purpose, what are your values, and what model will serve that best. I remember hearing from Catapult, they chose the nonprofit structure mm-hmm. because of a lot of the benefits that they would get through software and through uh, donations, but also because most of their clients were nonprofits as well. And so it made sense for them to set up that way because the funders for their nonprofit clients were also prefer them have a nonprofit consultant. So I think it's also going back to who are the people that you're serving and what would benefit them. Maybe one last question on education. You know, you and I have, have groused between each other about the lack of focus on, on some of these things, you know, during the course of education. And, you know, thinking specifically about the field of social design, you know, the AIA publishes a, a manual of how to practice. And mm-hmm. it's about, you know, 400 pages thick and carries like every single like detail. And as we discussed in this interview, the ways of running a for-profit design practice and a nonprofit, socially minded practice aren't necessarily all that different. I mean, superficially, they're different. They're different forms to fill out. But mm-hmm. at their core, you're really talking about the same thing. You know, what are your values? Who are the people that you're trying to serve? What is your offering? Like these sorts of things. Are we missing out by not having, you know, that woven directly into design curricula? Mm-hmm. I am torn on this because I think part of it doesn't necessarily need to be in there, it's up to us to seek it out. I mean, you and I have both gone out and learned and taken other courses, and I think there's plenty of other people that have as well. I think in some ways it exists out there, and it's just a matter of having that curiosity and letting those questions drive you to find the outlet for it. Because I think there are quite a few people that go into architecture because that's what they want to do is the buildings. And that's mm-hmm. great. We need people to really understand all the those details of buildings, the nuances, the people that love the codes and like all that stuff. What people that love codes? There's a few. <laughs> no, I <laughs> think you're few. making that up. Uh, uh, okay. So not necessarily would be your answer. Yeah. I really enjoyed my one semester course of professional practice. I wish I could have had that for like the whole five years. I wish I could have taken one every semester because I really loved the business side and the organizational side and how Mm -hmm. do you design the actual firm to run. And that's probably subconsciously what drew me to actually study and do a minor or a near minor in business uh, because I was really curious about that alongside learning how buildings went together. So I think in some ways it's following your own curiosity and letting the resources, like finding those resources for yourself. 
Katie, thank you so much. I think that's a, a wonderful place to, to end. And for our listeners, um, heed the call. Uh, understand your own curiosity. And there are resources and there are paths and there are trailblazers to follow. Katie, again, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thanks so much for having me. You've been listening to Social Design Insights with Eric Kessel. I'd like to thank my guest of the week, Katie Kripal, for all of her thoughts on the business, structure, and operations of practicing public interest design. Like I said, I've wanted someone like Katie on the show for a long time, and was very happy to hear that she had moved back to the Bay Area. Myself and a lot of my contemporaries learn how to do social design by just doing it. But if there's an emphasis to this show, it's that the field is maturing, and that we have a wealth of resources all around us that can help us use design to make the world a better place. To learn more about Katie and her practice, please visit our website at currystonefoundation.org. If you have any feedback on the show, ideas for guests, or just want to chat, you can write to me at eric at socialdesigninsights.com. That's E-R-I-C at socialdesigninsights.com. Social Design Insights is produced by Baruch Zeichner, and at the break, we're listening to Cosmopolitan by Joe Jackson from the Mike's Murder soundtrack. And Baruch tells me that this is a dramatically underrated movie from the 1980s that I need to see. So my weekend plans are now suddenly solidified. I will let you guys know how it goes. Social Design Insights is an initiative for the Curry Stone Foundation. If you haven't already, please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just look for Curry Stone FDN for all the latest news on social impact design. 